precipice uh, not far from Nazareth and was able to overlook uh, the Jezreel Valley, which is a beautiful fertile valley. We've talked a little bit about the Jezreel Valley in the context of the uh, stories from Judges. Uh, Cohen, if you'd like to pop that slide up, we'll we actually be able to see. Uh, and looked out towards the Hill of Morah, which is the place where the battle took place that described for us in Judges chapter 7. Now, I have to say to you, um, actually being able to go to the places and see them physically was a massive blessing because you can actually start to imagine just what it was actually like. And so using your imagination, if you can this morning, uh, looking out through this vista across the Jezreel Valley, imagine 185,000 Midianites, or however many there was, 135, 5,000 of them, sorry, uh, camped in the valley. Imagine what 135,000 people camped in the valley would look like. The scripture tells us that Gideon and his uh, army was near the spring of Harod, which is still there. It's called Gideon's spring to this day. But the Midianites were camped in the valley, perhaps a little beyond where that water feature is. Well, it's not a water feature, it's a reservoir. <laughs> <laughs> that which is wet <laughs> in front of you. Uh, actually, there's, there's just that, such a richness in being able to see something like this because, you know, there's other stories in the Bible about kings who tried to attack and went up through the Jezreel Valley and their chariot wheels got bogged in the mud. You can see why, because it's a wet kind of a place in the, in the wet time of year. But just imagine um, the Midianite camp for a moment. I'm going to need some help with this. I'm going to ask, um, I need four guys to help me. So, Josh, would you mind just coming up onto the stage? Um, maybe Rob. Rob, if you'd come up. Um, Rob, Paul, would you mind? Just come and stand behind me here. Uh, I want you to imagine these guys as Midianites. Probably not that hard to do. <laughs> I'm going to get in lots of trouble. Uh, we haven't got 135,000 of them to represent it here, but just imagine uh, the Midianites. I want you to get a kind of a mental image of what it must have looked like to have 135,000 camped in the valley down below. What's 135,000 actually look like? If I could just get you, Rob, and Rob, just to lie down, uh, head, to, head to foot. So Rob, just this way, and Rob, same, that way. Josh, that way, just stay with me. Uh, and Paul, that way. If we, yeah, that's it, so there, yeah, that's the way. They're being very discreet here. <laughs> They're feeling very embarrassed too. They're keeping their feet away from the other person's head. But if per chance, you were to take 135,000 Midianites and lie them down head to foot, that would make a line that would go approximately 243 kilometres. Or to put it into scale, a line from Madonga all the way to Kilmore down the Hume Freeway. It's a pretty long way, isn't it? 135,000. Thanks, guys. You can jump up. Don't go to sleep during the sermon like you might normally. <laughs> Don't go down. I haven't finished with you yet. <laughs> no, no, no. If, <laughs> if per chance you organised it so that th this is going to really challenge you guys, I need you to hold hands and form a circle. <laughs> if you could organise, this is lovely to see some men. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I want you to imagine a circle. If 135,000 Midianites 
managed to overcome their embarrassment around holding hands with one another. And the Midianites didn't have an issue with holding hands with one another either, by the way. This is just... <laughs> This is fine, I'm just stretching out the friendship a bit here. If we got them to form up a circle, all holding hands, that circle would have a diameter of 276 kilometres. Sorry, not a diameter, it would have a diameter of, let me get my facts right, a diameter of 74 kilometres, beg your pardon, not that far. So if Rob was here, um, Josh here would be somewhere around Wangaratta opposite him. That's how big the circle You can drop hands, but don't go away. <laughs> if uh, I had to feed these customers, if we gave them 500 grams of spuds every day, you'd need 470 tonnes of potatoes a week, or around about 118,000 four kilo bags of potatoes. You'd need around about 370,000 litres of drinking water every day, 62,000 loaves of bread thereabouts, and if you were going to give them a feed of roast chicken, around 33,750 chickens. <laughs> If you got them to stand, jump up, step back, uh, four persons per square metre, so just shoulder to shoulder, and you guys come in front so that you're on a square metre. If they were this close and that friendly, you guys should have been at the back, really, because now we can't. We can't. You <laughs> this, is, this is all my fault, because I chose you. Um, if you got them to stand like this, shoulder to shoulder, four per square metre in a rectangular formation, imagine you've seen these kind of things with marching armies, that sort of stuff, you'd need a square of around 259 metres uh, in each of the angle directions. So say 260 metres this way, 260 metres that way, which would be fine as long as the person in the middle had only been eating potatoes and chicken and not something else. <laughs> Thank you gentlemen, you can uh, resume your seats. <laughs> Between them, 135,000 Midianites would have needed a quarter of a million sandals. Uh, if you're, if you're <laughs> speaking of podiatry issues, if every one of them clipped one <laughs> gram off their toenails at the same time... <laughs> aren't you glad we didn't do that? <laughs> you, would, you would end up with a bag weighing... <laughs> what, why is, what's the cringe factor? Who has issues with feet here? Yeah, OK, I can tell. I can just see this. There's a few people kind of going... Ugh. 135 kilos of toenail clippings. <laughs> can you imagine chucking that up on eBay? <laughs> if um, <clears throat> if, if uh, Gideon's army, which initially numbered 32,000 fighting men, went up against the Midianites and was to overpower them, each Israelite would need to have killed, um, on average, 4.21. That was the ratio. It was one to four, roughly. And we might find some of those statistics kind of funny, and it is fun to mess around with those. Uh, but it puts fresh light on, on the image there before us because the scripture tells us, and we learnt this um, early in the stories of Gideon, the Midianites came upon Israel and they decimated the land. And you can understand now why, can't you? 
135,000. How do you feed that many? Well, they just came with their camels, which the scripture says were, were so numerous you couldn't count them. And they ate everything. They took everything. No wonder Gideon was to be found down in a hole, threshing out what little grain they were able to save from this marauding horde of locusts as the Midianites were described, they came upon the land and they absolutely impoverished the land, which is in total contrast to what we see there in that um, picture that's on the screen today. Well, today we're going to go through that really well-known text in Judges chapter 7. Let me encourage you to have it out in front of you if you've got a Bible or a device there. We'll have it on the screen in a moment. It's a tricky message today because it's hard to say anything fresh um, about this story. Most of you have heard it before. It's one of the go-to stories for kids' church. Um, We've all heard these stories, the applications you've heard before. So as we go through it, we are going to make some applications. It might be a little bit left of centre in terms of... um, what you've heard before but I trust that God will speak today through what we're saying let's pray before we dig into the word father we do want to thank you that you are a God who speaks and so as we come to this well-worn well-known story open our eyes afresh to what your spirit is saying to us today and uh, may we experience your word in a way that we've not experienced it before may we be challenged to action today in response to your word perhaps in a way that we've not been challenged before and so we commit ourselves into your care now in jesus name amen let's have a look at the story we're going to challenge cohen to see if he can keep up Uh, but i'm sure he's got it under control back there It starts off uh, the first line. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harod. You've seen a photo of that. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterwards, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could no more be counted than sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. 
his friend responded, this can be nothing more than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars into the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon! Gideon and the 300 men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grabbing the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow. They shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah, towards Zerarah, as far as the border of Abel Meholah, near Tabith. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messages, messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. But you'd have to say, in terms of military advantage, Gideon had the odds stacked against him, wouldn't you? 135,000 versus 32,000 is not a great ratio. And yet we know from verse 2 that God looked at that army that Gideon had and said, that is just too many. There's too many people. I want you to continue to use your sanctified imaginations with me this morning and imagine... <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> Imagine that this is Gideon's army. It's a brand new roll of toilet paper. 400 sheets. And God said to Gideon, there are too many in your army. Because I know if you go up against the Midianites and you, uh, and you win that battle, um, you will be proud. And you will say, well, we defeated the Midianites in our strength. And the reality is that pride after battle robs God of glory and fear in the midst of a battle robs God's soldiers of courage. And so God said to Gideon, in line with um, a passage you'll find in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 1 to 8, God said, look, at any time any of your soldiers are going up against the enemy and you're fearful, send them home. It's actually a biblical imperative that um, was applied here in this case. And so Gideon said to his army of 32,000, if you are fearful, uh, you can go home. And a great stack of them went home. The numbers just kept peeling off. And I imagine, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I can imagine that as Gideon was watching what was happening, he would have been saying, um, hang on a second, don't go. 
You know, you're some of the best people we've got. And yet the people of that army, that's something in the order of 22,000 of them. This is taking longer than I expected, but I'm an expert at just keeping on talking. Uh, they just kept on going and the numbers kept on dwindling. And Gideon would have continued to look at the numbers and thinking, my goodness, Lord, what are you going to do here? 32,000. Now there's only 22,000. Now there's only 12,000. Now there's only 10,000 left, around about a third of what he started with. How am I ever going to defeat the Midianites with this number? How am I going to avoid tripping over and making a real fool of myself? But God was actually in the business of testing Gideon because God was interested in Gideon placing his faith in him and not in his army. And this is one of the strategies that, uh, that God applies universally uh, even into our context and so the first point of application that we have here to reflect on today um, and Cohen you might have to throw it up for me because it's not working for me the first uh, application I want to draw from this passage is this faith is a lot like a toothbrush everyone should have one and use it regularly but it isn't safe to use somebody else's Faith is like a toothbrush. Everyone should have one and use it regularly, but it's not safe to use someone else's. And it's not safe to ground your faith in something other than God either. And that was the lesson that uh, God wanted to teach Gideon. You see, faith at its core is the acknowledgement of God's capacity to act in whatever the situation might be. And so it was not appropriate for Gideon to rely on the strength of his army or on the acumen of his troops or on their training or their dedication or their enthusiasm. God wanted him to ground his faith on God. And it's true for us today. You know, years ago, um, for those of you who've been around church for a long time, you might remember singing an old hymn that, uh, that the line was, uh, Faith of our fathers living still. Is that familiar to anyone? I'm not going to sing it for you because last time I sang up the front here, the feedback wasn't that positive. Um, <laughs> that's not entirely true. Um, a couple of people said, you know, you probably should, but no, I won't. Um, faith of our fathers living still can only happen if that faith is developed in every generation. You can't pass it on. You can encourage people. You can help people grow in faith. But ultimately, faith is something we have to own ourselves, isn't it? And although we don't face the kind of crisis that Gideon faced, we do all face challenges and tests and temptation. And one of the things that God is deeply invested in is growing your faith in those places. And it's helpful to have others around you who are people of faith. That can be a great strength and a great encouragement. But ultimately, it's you that needs to develop faith. And God's invested in that. It's you that God wants to respond to him and trust in him. I remember years ago when we were first considering service overseas, it was a challenging time trying to figure out, is this where God was leading us or not? And not a small thing to do, you know, uprooting a family. Uh, we had two small children at that time. Um, we had other options that we were looking at in terms of ministry. Let's get rid of our stuff, put it all in a couple of barrels and take it to another country that we've never been to. We don't know the language, don't know the people. What to do? And so we wrestled with this. I wrestled with it in prayer. I asked God. I searched the word. I hoped that something would jump out. You know, one of those confirmation passages that you look for sometime. Um, I deliberately didn't put out a fleece. Um, 
<laughs> but uh, really, really wrestled with, you know, what is God saying? And in the process, went to a couple of close friends and said, what do you think? One of them was a fellow who I'd been working with in ministry a little bit. Um, I'm happy to say who it was. Some of you might know Reg Worthy. He used to be in charge of prison fellowship. And I sat down with Reg and I said, Reg, here's the situation. I had done um, a, a piece of work. I'd, uh, and this is how I rolled, you know, something, a hard decision, pros, cons. I'd written down all of that stuff. Say, Which one's the heavier? Oh, I can't. They're both about the same. I went to Reg. I explained explained all of this stuff I said Reg what do you think and he said go for it man hmm <laughs> that was affirming went to another friend who I had just as much faith and trust and said same process this is what and that person said well I'm not sure this is of the Lord <laughs> and I still remember to this day sitting on a grassy slope that we had at the house that we were living in in Lilydale at the time and crying out to God in prayer saying how do I reconcile this you know one says go for it the other says don't go for it what do I do and in that place God said you need to trust me and work it out it's no good relying on the faith of others you can take advice from others and it might be good advice in fact both sets of advice were good advice which might sound odd to say, but they gave me pause to think and caused me to drive deeper into what God was saying to me. And so it was good advice, both. But ultimately, it was between my family and the Lord. And it was a pivotal lesson from God, so much as God does put godly people around us that we might draw wisdom from, but we're not to rely on their faith in lieu of developing our own. We're not to rely on the faith of our parents or our pastor or our church or whatever it might be in lieu of developing our own. And that was one of the lessons that Gideon was to learn. If you turn to the New Testament, uh, Mark chapter 8, verse 29, uh, 27 to 29, you might remember the story where Jesus challenged Peter in a similar kind of a way. He said to Peter as they were walking along one day, I have a lovely image of what this might look like. Jesus saying to Peter, um, who do the people say I am? And Peter said, well, that's a good question, actually. You know, some of the people say that um, you're John the Baptist, which is a good answer. Some say Elijah and some one of the prophets. You know, what other people say about you, Jesus? But then Jesus sharpened up the question and he said, who do you say that I am? And that's a question that pierces the heart, isn't it? And that's the question that God asks any one of us. Who do you say that I am? Don't tell me who other people say I am because ultimately uh, where you stand in relationship to me is determined by that question. Not by whether Janine says it or Grace says it or whoever says it. Who do you say I am? And that's the question that God puts before us all. Jesus wasn't actually all that interested in what other people were saying. But Peter, who do you say I am? And it's a question, as I say, that Jesus puts to us all. It doesn't wash to say, well, um, well, my pastor says that you are this, or my mother says that you are this, or my kids' church leader says that you are this. Though family or friends or the church can model faith and encourage faith, it's not genetic, it's not automatically passed on to us. We need to develop it ourselves. And that's where God was pushing Gideon to grow. Gideon, you need to have your own faith. You need to trust in me yourself. And that one question, my friends, who do you say I am, determines where we spend eternity. And so it's a critical question. 
who do you say I am, Jesus asks any one of us. How do you respond to that question? It's critical to where you stand before God. On the process, the passage that we're looking at today, the process that God was putting Gideon through by thinning down his army was testing his faith so that it would be real faith, not based on something counterfeit, not based on the strength of his army, this army of of people who took off and went home because they were fearful. And so Gideon was left with a much smaller army. Now Gideon might well have been very anxious about the fact that his army had been heavily culled, but God was not finished. And as everybody who's ever been to kids' church will know, God took Gideon with his soldiers, led them to a spring where, uh, just stick with me here, another 9,000 of them disappeared. (laughs) And in the end, Gideon was left with just this many. 1% of the army that he started with. 1% of that great army of 32,000 who were already going up against 135,000. 1%! 300 out of an original 32,000. Have you ever thought about how, this is totally not related to the story of Gideon, but it's so good. Have you ever thought about how God is the God of the 1%? You know the story in the New Testament, Jesus tells about the good shepherd who leaves the 99, goes looking for the 1%. And we sometimes think, you know, God's only going to do big stuff or can't do stuff through me. God uses that 1%, that very unusual 1% to do such amazing things. Let's leave that army just sitting there. God is the God of the 1%. Now, I don't know about you, but like you, I've probably heard lots of interpretations of of the, uh, the story going to the spring and how the soldiers drank, right? I can remember being told, well, uh, when Gideon took them down there, they were watching. Those who knelt down, they were not going to make the cut because a soldier who kneels down is not ready to go to battle, right? Those who scooped the water up and lapped it like dogs, they were the ones who were postured, ready to go to battle. Only 300 did that. They were the ones that Gideon wanted to keep. They were the ones that God was going to use. What I want to say to that interpretation is, what a load of rubbish. Can we say that in church? Three reasons why I think it's probably not true. Maybe I've gone too far. First of all, uh, they were nowhere near the enemy camp. Gideon hadn't led them to the middle of the Midian. They, they didn't need to do that. They didn't need to be ready to battle. So that wasn't necessary. Second, perhaps even more interestingly, and probably more relevantly, is this. God wasn't, that actually, in, wasn't actually all that interested in who was a good soldier or not. God hadn't said, I only want the best. I can only use the best. God said, I'm going to have 300. God was not interested in the military acumen of the soldiers because who was going to win the victory? It was God, not the soldiers. And thirdly, (laughs) this is important too, and when I was talking earlier about rehearsing, you know, we rehearse how to read our Bible. The Bible doesn't say anything about why God chose these ones over those ones. We read this back into the text. We have this idea and we read it back into the text that those who were standing were better. This doesn't say anything about that in the scripture at all. And I wonder whether or not any of the soldiers knew what was going on at the time. Just imagine again, if you can, and they came to the spring, they were having a drink, and Gideon was there being directed by the, the Spirit of the Lord, saying, you can go home, you can go home, you can go home, you can stay, you can go home, you can go home. 
wonder what the soldiers were thinking at the time. Strange kind of a situation, perhaps. And although I have to draw a slightly longer bow than usual to make this next point, um, it's this. One of the things that this little part of the story suggests to me is that even though we don't always know what God's up to, what we ought to do is make every occasion a great occasion. Because those soldiers came along had no idea what was going on in that space. But it was a great occasion because they were being sifted. They were being sorted for what God was going to do. Make every occasion a great occasion. Some years ago after some, uh, well, one Sunday I think it might have been, um, one of the ladies in the congregation came to me and said to me, David, I'm going to totally change direction in my career. I've been going down this way, started to go in this direction. I said to her, what's prompted this? That's a very strange thing to do when you're uh, late 50s. And she said, well, it's actually something you said in a sermon about three months ago. And I preached on three months ago. I'm flat out remembering what I preached on last week, let alone three months ago. But she talked about it. She said, one little thing that was mentioned has actually got me thinking. An ordinary moment in the middle of a service that God used in an extraordinary way. Was it an ordinary occasion? Hardly. It was a great occasion because it changed the trajectory of her life. And one of the things I want to encourage you to grab hold of this morning is this notion that anything that we do, every decision that we make, every conversation that we have, every action that we perform has the opportunity or the potential to be a great occasion in the economy of God. And we never know for sure when that's going to happen. And let me just give you some illustrations of what that might look like um, uh, in a moment. One of the sad realities of our time is that we sometimes confine God's activity to what happens inside the church or in programs or special events and we're actually sucked into believing unless we see some outrageous kind of charismatic or um, um, obvious manifestations of God's spirit then God's not at work but actually God's at work through so many little interactions he's the God of the ordinary he's the God of the mundane if you like he's the God who can work through anything it's such a narrow view of God expecting that he's only going to work in one way. He does work in those ways we know. But time and time and time again I've seen things happen where God's just worked through a conversation or through a word of encouragement or through a little note that's been given to someone or an act of kindness or presence or whatever it might be. Have you ever thought about how the conversation that you today may have with a child who comes out of kids' church could change their lives forever? I've talked about this before. I'll keep banging on about this. One of the things that research tells us is that uh, a child is more likely to stay in the life of the kingdom if five people in the church, other than their parents, know them by name because what that communicates to them is that they're valued. You're important to us. And you just never know whether that encouraging word that you share with that little girl or little boy today may actually put them on a pathway that God will use in the future. It has the potential to do that. You never know whether the opportunity that you have to talk to that person that you met before the service, remember the one that you've not met before, uh, might actually make a difference in their world today because as I said a couple of weeks ago, we come with happy faces on here but there are people amongst us who are hurting today. 
who are lonely today, who are finding it tough going in this space today for all sorts of reasons, whether it's related to work or not being able to work or just not connecting or finding it hard in a crowd, whatever it might be, your engagement with that person today may make the difference that will change the trajectory of their life. Make every occasion a great occasion. Um, here's a little phrase I want you to repeat after me. I wonder how God could use that. That's not very convincing. <laughs> I wonder how God could use that. There's your take-home question from the, the uh, message this morning. To ask that question, I wonder how God could use that because there's all sorts of opportunities that we have through um, our lives that God can use in ways that we can't imagine at the time. Some years ago too, I, um, uh, I heard news that a pastor friend of mine whose name was Norm had had a terrible accident. Norm was a, um, a musician, a very accomplished guitar player. He was also a woodwork teacher, and as he was messing around at home, he ran his hand into a circular saw. His right hand, his musicking hand. I guess you use both hands on the guitars, don't you, Paul? Well, you did anyway. Um, yeah. <laughs> Shows what I know about guitars. Norm ran his hand into the circular saw, terrible damage, terrible, terrible damage, massive blood loss, so much so that it caused heart issues. He uh, lived out in the west, went into the hospital. They said, oh, no, we can't treat you here. Your wife's going to have to drive you all the way to Warrnambool two hours away. He said, you've got to be kidding. I'll be dead by the time I get there. They managed to get him to Warrnambool. Surgery on his hand, ICU, great big bandages, an airbag holding it up so it couldn't touch anything. It was a terrible situation, and I just happened to be in town in those days, back in the olden days, you could go and visit people in hospital. Maybe we'd be able to do that again one day. And I went into ICU as I was able to do, and I sat down. We just talked as friends, because I'd known him from previous encounters, and uh, visited him two or three times over that time. We just talked about life, and we talked about ministry. We talked about his recovery. We talked about the fact he was going to have to go and have heart surgery. And then he left, and he went to Melbourne, and it was maybe six months later or longer, I can't remember, we met up um, over in the west and I said, Norm, how are you going? He said, I'm going okay. But David, you know you saved my life. And I said, what? He said, you saved my life. And even as I tell you the story, the goosebumps appear on my arms because they did in that moment. I said, what do you mean, Norm? How did I save your life? He said, well, that accident took away so much from me. I thought and haven't been able to play the guitar. Never going to be able to do that because I just lost uh, all that, um, what's the word, pronation? Dexterity, there's a good word. There's the word for the day. The dexterity in my hands. Uh, my heart had been so impacted. Uh, I was filled with uh, an overwhelming blackness. I was depressed. I had given up. I was going to give away my faith. I was just going to give up and die. And you came along and you sat with me and you saved my life. And I thought, Norm, all I did was sit with you, mate. All I did was talk with you. Was that an ordinary moment? Hardly. Making every moment an extraordinary moment. Wow, that was, uh, that was one of those occasions where um, my, my question comes back to you. I, know, I wonder how God could use this because you just never know. I had no idea that six months later Norm would say, you save. I had no idea of the situation he was even in. 
and yet God was able to use that to bring glory to his name because he restored that man and brought him back to um, able to minister again. It was not an ordinary occasion. Make every occasion a great occasion. I wonder how God could use that. Well, in the depths of the night, the passage tells us, um, God further buttressed Gideon's faith by encouraging him to sneak down into the Midianite camp where he heard um, about God's plans once again. You know, Gideon needed so many encouragements, didn't he? So many times the Lord had to just bring him back and say, I've got this, I've got this. And Gideon went down into that camp with his servant and made a cheering discovery. And our third point of application this morning is this one. Um, The enemy dreams of disaster. Let me quote to you, and I haven't done this terribly often, from Charles Haddon Spurgeon who wrote on this topic. I'm reluctant in some ways to do it, not because of the lack of uh, context in Spurgeon's sermons, but because of the language. So forgive me for the language, but it's such, um, such a pointed application that Spurgeon has that I can't do it better than him. This is what he says. You and I sometimes think about the hosts of evil and we fear we shall never overcome them because they're so strong and so secure but listen we overestimate them the powers of darkness are not so strong as they seem to be the subtlest infidels and heretics are only men what is more they're bad men and bad men at the bottom are weak men you fret because in this war you are not angels be comforted to think that the adversaries of the truth are men also you sometimes grow doubtful and so do they You have to spare a victory, and so do they. You're at times hard put to it, so are they. You sometimes dream of disaster, so do they. It's natural to men to fear and doubly natural to bad men. It must have been a great comfort to Gideon to think that the Midianites dreamed about him and that their dreams were full of terror to themselves. He did not think that much of himself, He reckoned himself as the least of all in his father's house and that his father's house was the least in Israel. But the foes of Israel had taken another gauge of Gideon. They had evidently the notion that he was a great man whom God might use to smite them and they were afraid of him. And Spurgeon goes on to say, Behold the host of doubters and heretics and revilers who at the present time have come up into the inheritance of Israel, hungry from their deserts of rationalism and atheism. They're eating up all the corn of the land. They cast a doubt upon the verities of our faith. But we need not fear them, for if we heard their secret counsels, we should perceive that they are actually afraid of us. Their loud blusterings and their constant sneers are the index of real fear. Those who preach the cross of our Lord Jesus are a terror of the modern thinkers. In their heart of hearts they dread the preaching of the old-fashioned gospel and they hate what they dread. On their beds they dream of the coming of some evangelist into their (laughs) neighbourhood. They wish they could stop these Calvinistic fellows and those evangelical old fogies. I guess that's us. To a degree. Brethren, so long as the plain gospel is preached in England, there will always be hope that these brigands will yet be scattered and the church be rid of their intrusion. Rationalism, Socinianism, ritualism, and universalism will soon take to their legs if the clear, decided cry of the sword of the Lord and of Gideon be heard once more. 
is an interesting statement, isn't it? I should translate it into modern language for you at some stage. The point, though, is this. When God calls us into battle, there is nothing that we might fear. Indeed, the announcement that we make, the announcement that Jesus gives us there in Luke chapter 10 of the kingdom strikes fear into the hearts of the enemy. And the rest of the story, as they say, is history. The Midianites fell upon themselves in the sense that the judgment of the Lord came upon them and will ultimately on those who reject his lordship. Israel had victory and Gideon faded ultimately into the background as an important part of the history of the people of God. We'll look at him again, but in terms of the grand history of Israel, he too takes his place. But as a passage that leaves a legacy for us today which says that we don't have to be great to be great in the kingdom. And that we don't have to have great faith to do amazing actions in God's strength. For man's extremity, our extremity, is often God's opportunity. Where we run out, God takes over, in other words. And we sometimes think that the effective servant of Christ has to be dynamic and assured and fearless and witty and glamorous and adventurous. But Jesus takes the most unlikely of folks and uses them in the most unlikely of circumstances. The God who not only chooses left-handed saviours or saviours out of left field, but of the 1%. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe of who you are and what you do and have been reminded of this story, God, of the manner in which uh, you call your servants. We thank you that you don't look as we do at the outside, but you look at what's on the inside. And so today, as we've been reflecting on this passage, we pray that you will help us develop the kind of faith that you want us to develop, faith which is centred and grounded in you, faith which depends upon you, faith which holds no store in the things around us, but only in you. And today, too, as we take up the challenge of asking that question, I wonder how God will use this Let's apply that, we pray, Lord, to every conversation that we have, every act of service that we perform here and through this week, every relationship that we're engaged in, every circumstance that we're in. I wonder how God could use this. How can you use our, our commute to work, Lord? How can you use conversations in our workplaces? How can you use us in our homes, in our relationships with our family? How can you use us to build others up? How can you use us to advance the work of your kingdom? I wonder how God could use this. Whatever it is, God, help us to have a kingdom-oriented view and trust you for the rest because you are at work. We thank you for that. We praise you and give you the glory. Amen.